0: Welcome to the Nutrition Science Podcast, where we help you cut through the noise and make informed, science-based decisions about nutrition and your health. Before we get into the show, I wanted to let you know that there was some audio issues on my end, and you'll hear as you listen that my audio sounds a bit choppy. So I just wanted to let you know so you didn't think it was your speakers or your headphones. This is a really informative episode. If you can bear with us through the audio issues, I just wanted to let you know that. Before we got started, welcome back to the Nutrition Science Podcast. I have a really special guest today, Dr. David Stukas. We're going to be talking about food allergies, food intolerances, food sensitivities, and everything related to that. Dr. Stukas is the director of the Food Allergy Treatment Center at Nationwide Children's Hospital. He is also the professor of clinical and pediatrics in the Division of Allergy and Immunology at Nationwide Children's as well. In addition to providing clinical care for children with all types of food allergy, Dr. Stugis participates in clinical research, quality improvement, patient advocacy, and medical education. So he's a world renowned speaker. He holds leadership positions in several academic institutions. He also runs a podcast called The Conversations from the World of Allergy, which I highly recommend checking out if you find this information in this episode helpful. And then you can also find him active on social media. He has a popular Twitter account and an Instagram account as well called Allergy Kids Doc. I highly recommend giving that a follow as well. And he helps to combat information and dispel myths around this topic. And he's also written a textbook on this topic called Social Media for Medical Professionals, which I'm just blown away by the amount of, of contribution you've made to this space, Dr. Tukas. Thanks for coming on.
1: Well, thank you very much for having me. That was a a very kind introduction. I'm going to re-listen to that whenever I'm having an an off day. That was very nice of you. Thanks.
0: (laughs) Yeah, yeah. So let's go ahead and jump into the discussion and start off by defining the differences between food allergy, food intolerance, and food sensitivity. So what are those and what are the differences between those?
1: Yeah, this is extremely important, and this is something I say to every single family that I meet as as sort of a new consultation. Because until we clarify the diagnosis, uh, it really the rest of it doesn't matter. So when it comes to most forms of food allergy, it's caused by this IgE antibody, so it causes immediate reactions typically within minutes, rarely longer than, you know, one or two hours after eating a food. You typically have to eat the food to cause reactions. And you can have any combination of uh, red itchy hives on the skin, swelling, you can have vomiting, you can have coughing and wheezing, or you can have a systemic reaction called anaphylaxis, which is really more than one organ system being involved. Mm -hmm. If you are eating a food and you're not experiencing those symptoms and you eat a food, you do not have a food allergy. There are other types of delayed onset food allergies, which are much more rare, uh, especially in older children and adults. Uh, We can see some forms in infants. There's a a common form called um, milk protein-induced allergic proctocolitis, which is a mouthful, which is a very benign condition, which is basically they get some blood in their stool at an early age when they're drinking cow's milk formula. Sometimes it's transmitted through the breast milk. This almost always resolves by a year of age. All right, so that's allergy. Immune response, reproducible eat it, I have these symptoms. If I don't eat it, the symptoms should go away. If I have symptoms without eating it, we start to think about other things. Intolerances do not involve the immune system. This is difficulty with digestion. The most common example is lactose intolerance. Lactose is a simple sugar found in dairy products. People with lactose intolerance, either temporarily or long-term, lack the enzymes necessary to digest this. You eat lactose, it passes through your gastrointestinal tract undigested, and it causes bad problems, such as water being sucked into the bowel or increased gas production. So you have delayed onset hours or, or later that day or the next day, Bloating, cramping, diarrhea, constipation, things like that. So these are mostly GI symptoms. And then lastly, we have food sensitivities, which, you know, just like you, I've spent a lot of time, you know, really investigating from an evidence based standpoint everything that I try to talk about and understand the world that we live in. I, for the life of me, and correct me if I'm wrong, cannot find a consensus medical definition for what constitutes a food sensitivity, meaning there is no diagnostic test, which we'll talk about. There are no clearly defined criteria that anybody has to meet in order to be diagnosed with a food sensitivity. But if you spend more than 30 seconds online, you will see everybody yelling at you that you have hidden food sensitivities because they attribute any symptom known to mankind as being a quote-unquote food sensitivity. So that's a real problem. So there's really no consensus medical definition. If we really want to get into the weeds, which I'm sure we will, food sensitivities would be more non-immunologic adverse effects from eating a food. Um, But again, it has to be cause and effect. So I'll pause there. I threw a lot at you, but yeah, that's a great place to start.
0: Yeah. Great, great, uh, great breakdown of those topics. And as you mentioned, food sensitivity, uh, it it really is a just a general term that is used to, to label any type of adverse reaction to foods. And there are various types of adverse reactions to foods that can occur, um, but they don't necessarily, uh, they, they're not going to fall under this general label as everything is a food sensitivity and people have food, hidden food sensitivities that is often uh, more used as a marketing tool to promote some things that we will discuss in, in this episode a little bit further. So I want to back up and, and discuss how do we test for these. So if you think that you have a food allergy or a food intolerance, how can you test for that?
1: Paying attention to the symptoms that you have and attributing them to the foods that you eat. So having a, a careful clinical history is always the most important part of, of testing, evaluation, and establishing the diagnosis. I'll, I'll, I'll repeat what I said earlier because it's really important. If you're eating a food and you're not having you know, clearly identifiable symptoms every time you eat it, it's very unlikely that you have an allergy or an intolerance. There's no hidden allergies, intolerances, or sensitivities. So pay attention to your own body. If you're having a lot of vague symptoms and you can't really figure out which food is causing it, it's also unlikely that specific foods are causing those symptoms. When we do have a clinical history that suggests food allergy, every time I eat this, within minutes I develop hives, swelling, vomiting, anaphylaxis, we have readily available allergy tests. We have skin tests, we have blood tests, and we have oral food challenges. The skin tests apply drops of liquid allergen to the skin, usually on the back of the forearm. Gentle little scratch to the top layer of the skin to introduce that allergen to those allergy cells. If that person makes that IgE antibody against the allergen, it opens up the allergy cells to release histamine. Histamine is a chemical that causes a lot of the symptoms and allergic reactions. It takes 15 minutes in the office. The size of the bump or the hive that occurs based upon that indicates the likelihood that that person is allergic. Blood testing measures levels of these specific IgE to a bunch of different foods. The levels come back from a scale of 0.1 to 100. The higher the level indicates the likelihood of somebody being allergic. Neither skin or blood tests are good screening tests because we get tons of false positive results. These aren't pregnancy tests. It's not like a yes, no answer. And they also don't indicate the severity of the reaction. So they're merely a guide towards whether somebody has an allergy, which we should really be diagnosing before we do the test anyways, because they have a good history for it. And then the gold standard test is what happens when you eat it. So at our food allergy center, we do about a thousand oral food challenges a year which is the best way. Come hang out with us for a few hours. It's very safe. It's very informative for somebody with a known food allergy. We think they're outgrowing it as they get older, or for trying to clarify the diagnosis at at the time of consultation, eat the food in front of us in a very safe way. We give very small amounts. We gradually increase it every 10 minutes or so until they eat a full serving size. If symptoms don't occur, you're not allergic to that food. Um, So that's really the best way to clarify.
0: Great, great. So you mentioned uh, getting a skin prick test and then also the IgE test, and you mentioned that these are not, you know, this these aren't telling you that you do or don't have an allergy. So one of the things that I see quite often, and one of the things that I run into where people are restricting foods is they've done screening Mm tests, skin prick screening tests, and IgE screening tests. And I've seen you talk
1: about that before. Can you go into a little bit more detail about why that's not recommended? Yeah. These were never designed to be screening tests. So if you look at all of the criteria for what constitutes a good screening test, it doesn't meet any of them. There are a lot of false positives. About 40% of children are sensitized, meaning they have an elevated IgE to milk, egg, shrimp, or peanut, but only 5% are allergic. So if we go by the testing alone, we're going to overdiagnose the vast majority of people. These tests are so bad that at our institution, we removed all of the blood food allergy panels because these panels are are put together and widely marketed to general pediatricians and uh, primary care physicians. And they say, wouldn't it be great to test your patient with one drop of blood and tell them everything they're allergic to? But they combine like random foods that make no sense whatsoever. They're testing people for rice and hops and barley and and crazy things. Um, So there's no clinical indication to ever order some random panel of food allergy tests because you get a lot of unnecessary... um, uh, you know, or I should say falsely positive results that don't mean anything clinically, and it causes a lot of harm. And one last thing I'll say about that is when I say harm, we now know it is without a doubt that if you tell somebody to avoid a food and they're not allergic to it, it absolutely causes harm in numerous ways. One, it can lead to disordered eating because now they're focused on a diet uh, and it really takes over their lifestyle and they're avoiding foods they don't have to avoid. Or more specifically, in younger infants, especially those with eczema, we want to get them to eat food and keep it in their diet consistently to prevent food allergies. You tell those babies to avoid those foods that they're sensitized to. That's how you actually create allergy and cause them to be allergic later in life.
0: Great points that I want to dive into a little bit further. So you mentioned um, making sure that the, the children are not avoiding foods unnecessarily. And how that plays a role in preventing allergies. Can you go into more detail about that? So um, one of the questions that came up a lot in my Instagram is how do we prevent allergies? Um, I know there's no simple answer to that, but you kind of got into it a little bit there. So uh, can you go into more detail about that?
1: There's no single cause as to why some people develop food allergy and others don't. Uh, It's multifactorial. We know that there's a a strong inheritance pattern of an allergic predisposition. So allergic parents have allergic children, but there's no gene that passes on a specific food allergen from a parent or sibling to a younger sibling or a child or anything like that. So there are children that are sort of predetermined to be more likely to develop food allergies. 20 years ago, we said, avoid, avoid, avoid. We said, no milk till one, no eggs till two, no nuts or peanuts till three, and pregnant and breastfeeding mothers avoid everything because you're gonna cause your child to become allergic. Well, it turns out that was based upon just, you know, the prevailing thought at the time, which made sense, but no evidence to support it. We now have very good evidence that shows that the opposite is true. The earlier we introduce these foods to the gut by having kids eat them, ideally around four to six months of age or whenever they're eating other solid foods, they can chew and swallow and not choke on their food, and then keep it in their diet consistently. That is the best path towards trying to promote tolerance and prevent food allergy. It's not rubbing it on the skin. We don't want to do that because that can cause nonspecific rashes. It can even sensitize kids. We want to let them eat it and then keep it in their diet consistently. There's multiple benefits to this. Primarily, it can help actually prevent food allergy in those who are predestined to develop it.
0: Yep. So consistent exposure um, is what it sounds like. And this is something that I see with GI issues too. We see this with fiber, people who can't tolerate fiber, consistently exposing themselves to different (laughs) types of fiber, more fiber helps them to better tolerate that. Um, I want to go back to the testing uh, for just a second. So you (laughs) mentioned false positives, and I know uh, we were going through that, and i Thought in my head, I know some people don't know what that means. So, false positive uh, means that it will say that you have the allergy when you actually don't. And if you have, if you do a screening test with 95 allergens or 100 allergens or whatever amount of allergens are, are included in the test, uh, you're going to have some false positives and you're going to be removing foods that uh, you don't need to remove. So, there, that's just statistically speaking, there are going to be foods in a test if you do a large screening test where you're going to be removing foods that are not um, you don't need to be removing because you're not actually allergic to them. Uh, I wanna uh, go off of testing a little bit because this is another very, very common thing and we kind of addressed it already with the sensitivities, but food sensitivity testing. So the IgG testing, the MCAT testing, the all cat testing, all of these uh, various types of food sensitivity tests. Can you speak to why those um, may or may not be something that people want to um, seek out?
1: Yeah, there's a couple of very easy explanations for why these tests are not useful. Uh, One is they're not validated. And that's really important. So the, the diagnostic tests that we do, we need them to be validated, which means we can trust them. And that means a couple of things. One, it means if you take the same person with the condition and you give them that test repeatedly over and over again, are they going to get the same results within themselves? Number two, do you take somebody who has a specific medical, medical condition and somebody who does not, give them both the same test, are you going to see very different results uh, saying that one person does have a condition and the other person does not? And then number three, has it been clearly established that a test result, you know, establishes a diagnosis? So all of these food sensitivity tests have not passed any three of those very basic steps for validation. Um, so they're not valid. They're not validated tests. And it also means there's actually really no evidence that has been demonstrated that they establish a diagnosis in anybody. You can find research and you can pretty much find publications to support any stance these days because of all the open access journals and the, the millions of articles that are published every year. It doesn't mean it's high quality science. And if you really look through the research studies that are quoted on some of these um, websites and the marketing tools and things like that, it doesn't actually hold up to the test. So it's either very, very small sample sizes. It's uh, using these tests in somebody where they lack a control group. So you're actually not seeing if there's any benefit uh, in, a, in a group that you know didn't have the testing done. Or it's for really specific indications, like for people with uh, irritable bowel syndrome or migraines or something like that. So they've never been established to be good screening tests. One last thing that I'll say the very well validated IgE food allergy tests that we use and rely upon all the time are not screening tests. So there is no reason to believe that the unvalidated IgG blood tests, MCAT tests, you know, immediately release tests or leap testing, whatever it is, those aren't validated. Those are not screening tests either. Exactly.
0: And as you mentioned, I'm very familiar with that research uh, with the IgG testing and IBS and the migraines, and they're very small sample sizes. And they're having people um, when you take an IgG test, you're going to see a lot of the common foods that you eat show up. So if you actually took an IgG test, and you removed a lot of those foods, you're just removing a lot of the common foods that you ate. And chances are, if you're experiencing consistent digestive issues, you might feel better. Um, That doesn't mean that the test was actually telling you anything it just it was just chance and in my own personal experience cuz i've worked with lots of people with gi issues i've seen 55 or more of these tests that have come from other practitioners before people reached out to me and it it never adds up and you know they they remove the foods and then they're scared of eating these foods and as you mentioned some of the anxiety and and disordered relationships with foods can occur as a result of these tests and and it's just not getting people to the right place. So I'm glad that you you um, discussed that. So next, I want to discuss how do we treat food allergies? So if you do have a food allergy, and um, so most of these are occurring in children, um, what do we need to do to go about treatment? Is there any treatment that, that can um, help to improve tolerance? Uh, can you go into detail about that?
1: Yeah, the gold standard and standard of care remains identifying what you're allergic to uh, and preventing accidental ingestion. Uh, So that's the mainstay of of treatment, regardless of desensitization, which we'll talk about and things like that. And what that entails is making sure we have the proper diagnosis, helping people understand risk. So if you have an IgE-mediated food allergy, your main risk comes from eating the food. And we understand a lot more about individual thresholds. So it used to be, you know, there's a lot of fear-based messaging surrounding all of this stuff, but there were campaigns in the past that said even trace amounts can kill you and just really scary stuff for people to read. That's not true. Um, You know, for instance, we know, you know, that about 50% of people with peanut allergy need to eat almost, you know, two-thirds of one peanut kernel before they have any symptoms at all, let alone a severe reaction. Um, So each individual varies in regards to their risk for reaction and severity and things like that. We help people understand the importance of reading labels uh, to prevent accidental ingestion and communicating with food handlers when they go to restaurants and things like that. So that's really the mainstay for everybody, also recognizing an allergic reaction. There is no known cure for food allergies. I know people listening right now will have read something on social media or online that somebody, you know, this is all snake oil. You know, there's miracle cures that are promised for every chronic condition known to mankind and very few of any of them actually pan out. So it's really important that people understand that it can be very dangerous if somebody says that they can cure your food allergy and they tell you to go ahead and eat whatever you're actually allergic to because not only are they not going to cure it, they could cause a severe reaction. And we've had some tragic stories uh, even in our practice, um, you know, here here in my. Hospital. So we do have ways now where we can actually reset the immune system to some degree and desensitize. So we've been doing desensitization for allergies for over a hundred years. I say we, not me personally, of course, but you know, in the field. So this is what allergy shots do. So if you take somebody with environmental allergies to, you know, things like grass pollen or cat dander, we can actually give very, very small amounts of what they're allergic to and inject it into their body over time. It can actually help promote tolerance and decrease their symptoms. These are all long-term treatment options. When it comes to food desensitization, the most common uh, way that we do this is through oral immunotherapy, which is intentional daily ingestion of very, very small amounts of that food allergen under very close supervision. There's a lot of math involved to make sure we're getting the right amount of protein. We gradually build up the amount that each person is getting uh, over time until they reach a maintenance dose. As of right now, this is, gonna, this is supposed to be years long, if not lifelong therapy, and it really needs to be given every single day. Now, what's the trade-off? This is a part of your daily life. So you have to be monitored for an allergic reaction. We recommend no intense exercise for about two hours after each dose. You have to take every dose on a a full stomach. And then side effects can occur. Most people experience some form of allergic reaction because they're eating what they're allergic to. Hopefully, these are are mild symptoms such as hives or upset stomach, but anaphylaxis can occur. So there's a lot of onboarding involved. Now, what's the benefit of doing it? Well, over time, especially when you reach maintenance dosing, you can increase the threshold you need to eat to cause a severe allergic reaction. So, whatever your your milligram of protein is for maintenance dosing, say it's you know three peanuts, um, you're hopefully protected from accidentally eating up to you know nine or twelve peanuts. Mm-hmm. Some people can start putting that food in their diet while they continue to receive maintenance dosing, but not everybody can. And some people do need to drop out because they're having significant adverse effects, or basically people just stop you know eating their food on a daily basis. Especially in adolescence, they just get tired of taking it every day. So there's a lot that goes into that, but that's something that's been used in clinical practice for over a decade. Um, and we're doing it more and more for other foods. Uh, there's similar research that looks at sublingual immunotherapy. So drops of the liquid allergen under the tongue, less mm-hmm. risk for adverse effects. I uh, can receive the similar benefit. That's not as widespread because it needs to be more standardized and we need to have some better better protocols in place, to better understand that. There's a company that's working on uh, a patch where you can desensitize to peanut by wearing oh. micro doses on the skin. Uh, the evidence looks pretty good. It's not currently FDA approved because they need to make the patch a little bit stickier, uh, but that's coming down the pike. And then what's really promising is we have these injections that will hopefully be available in the next year or so, maybe sooner, that block the IgE antibodies. So these are biologics. Uh, one's called omalizumab. We've used it for over 20 years for allergic asthma as indications for people with chronic rhinosinusitis and nasal polyps, chronic hives. And they're investigating this for food allergy. And it looks promising so far. It may offer that same level of protection if you accidentally eat what you're allergic to. Again, it doesn't cure your allergy. Uh, if you stop any of these treatments, you revert back to being allergic, but hopefully the FDA will approve um, one of these biologists in the next year. So very promising times in regards to treatment.
0: Yeah, yeah. Interesting times o- overall with the technology and the advances in medicine. Um, really looking forward to what's happening over the next 10, 20 years with, with, uh, with that. So another thing that I want to discuss is um, why do some people grow out of, Their allergies, like I know, most people don't carry their allergies into adulthood. Why does that happen in some people? Why doesn't it happen in others? Um, Can we go into a little detail about
1: that? Yeah, why? If you keep asking me why, I'm gonna you're gonna be a headache. So, why is a great question. We don't fully understand why, but we do know that it does happen. Um, It more likely. So, we we know this about asthma. So, just because somebody has asthma, you can take a thousand people with asthma, which means they have at baseline, some level of inflammation in their lungs and their airways get really twitchy and they have spasm, but that doesn't mean they all have the same type of asthma. Mm -hmm. I think it's the same with food allergy. So just because, you know, you take 10 people with milk allergy, they don't, they don't all have the same milk allergy. We know that, you know, Three-quarters of them can actually tolerate it when you heat it in the oven. Same thing with egg, Uh, whereas others cannot. Uh, Some of them will have more severe milk allergies. Some of them may outgrow this, whereas others may have lifelong allergies. So we don't know why. It's probably – we use the word phenotypes. So there's something different about their immune system and their, their pathology that makes them a little different from somebody else with a different phenotype. So we know for children who have milk, egg, wheat, or soy allergy, about 85% of them outgrow it, usually by school age. So it's always important when you're diagnosed at a young age to have follow-up testing, typically once a year, to help identify when those kids may outgrow it which is in contrast to those with peanut, tree nut, or seafood allergy, where only about 20% outgrow that as they get older. Um, But yeah, some people do and some people don't. And then for those that we we feel may have more persistent or potentially lifelong allergies, that's when we talk more about long-term treatment options and things like that. Okay.
0: Um, And you mentioned that, most people outgrow them and so what do you what are the recommendations for retesting that that's something that i think doesn't happen enough um, from what from my experience is people get diagnosed really early and then they don't necessarily retest to make sure that they're still uh, allergic
1: I agree. It breaks my heart. I, I see people that, you know, came in five years ago and they haven't come back. And lo and behold, they probably lost their allergy several years ago, but they continue to avoid it. So we generally repeat testing about once every 12 months, uh, sometimes a little sooner, sometimes we, we prolong things. Um, but we definitely want to do that, especially in the first, you know, five to 10 years of life, because things can change dramatically with the immune system. Uh, and it really is heartbreaking when people continue to avoid foods that they're no longer allergic to. Okay.
0: Okay. Um, can we can we speak a little bit more about F-Pies? Because um, I, okay. I had a few questions about that, and I know that's a little bit uh, not exactly like a true food allergy, but um, it, it's also related.
1: Yeah. Thank you for bringing that up. And it's interesting to me. So F-Pies is pretty darn rare. Um, and yet when you go on social media, it makes it seem like every child has it. And mm-hmm. I'll explain why in a second. And it scares the heck out of everybody. But for me, it's actually relatively easy to, to manage and, and handle. So food... Protein-induced enterocolitis syndrome, which is why we use the acronym FPIES. It's a mouthful. It is a food allergy because it's the immune system, but it's not that immediate antibody IgE. It's more of a T cell mediated delayed onset allergy. So it's reproducible every time you eat the food. It typically presents in infancy, often before 12 months of age, um, and typically it's going to be to. Uh, things that are not traditionally causes of IgE food allergies. So we can see this to things like rice and oat and sometimes poultry or yellow vegetables and things like that, but it can occur with cow's milk and egg, and it can pretty much occur with any food. Here's the story. The story is you feed something to your baby and they're completely fine. Two to three hours later, they have profuse like exorcist type vomiting where they just puke Mm. their guts out. Sometimes it's followed by diarrhea and then they get pretty lethargic. They're just wiped out after this. There are no associated hives. There's no associated swelling. This is not IgE-mediated. This is very delayed onset. The downside is we don't have a good diagnostic test that says, yes, this is definitely, definitely F-pies. For somebody like me, all I do is see you know children with food allergies, so I have a higher index of suspicion. But this can often go undiagnosed for months to years at a time. Mm-hmm. It's almost impossible to diagnose after one episode of vomiting. And the reason is because there are a dozen reasons why kids vomit. Uh, typically from gastroenteritis, there's a lot of coincidence that can occur. But when we start hearing that story of you know two or three or four times, they ate a food and they were completely fine. Three hours later, they start vomiting like crazy. That's when we start thinking that this could be F5s. FPIs tends to resolve, uh, usually by two or three years of age, similar rules apply. We typically reevaluate in about a year. And then the only thing we can really do is re-challenge. So sometimes we do that at home, uh, depending upon the situation, oftentimes we'll do that in the office setting, uh, where we actually just feed the food again, because as these, as it gets better, either they can no, no longer have the symptoms or symptoms tend to get more mild. And then one thing that we, that we use to counteract this is I prescribe every single family, something called Zofran, which is an anti-nausea medicine that dissolves in the mouth. Uh, so if their child does experience additional episodes of vomiting, we can give them some Zofran and make them feel better. But epinephrine doesn't treat it. Antihistamines doesn't treat it. Steroids don't treat it. Uh, so, yeah, it's, it's kind of a, it's an interesting diagnosis, but one that I love helping families clarify and, and help them navigate it.
0: Yeah, these things are so complicated and interesting. It's, it's, it's good to have an expert to, to learn more about uh, about these things. So another thing that I want to discuss, histamine intolerance. Uh, this is something that comes up, again, on social media a lot. I, I hear about it a lot. You know, low histamine diets have become popular in some circles. Is there any truth to people being sensitive to histamine, needing low histamine diets? To, is, is that something related to, to this topic?
1: I'd love to pick your brain on this as well. I have not seen very good evidence that says that this is, you know, affecting as many people as are led to believe. Um, Mm -hmm. So, you know, there are foods that contain all kinds of different chemicals. I always go back to what's the diagnosis? What is the actual, is it it just, you're completely fine. And then you eat a food that has high histamine content, then you have symptoms. It's unlikely. There's a lot of people out there that have, you know, chronic urticaria, chronic hives, non-allergic hives uh, that tends to, they just tend to get hives for no good reason, which can be brought on by stress or, Temperature fluctuations, or maybe the food that they're eating. Uh, what are, or do you have? Migraines? Uh, we know that there are certain foods that can absolutely trigger migraines, not because you're allergic to them or the histamine content or anything like that. Um, or, or do you have mast cell activation syndrome or mast cell disorders? If that's the case, then yes, it can be diet related, but that's not technically the food necessarily, as it is your own body and what's going on inside your body with those mast cells and allergy cells. So it's really complicated. But you know, the hard problem that I have with this, Adrian, and I'm, you. I I assume you agree with this is you make these blanket statements for just anybody who happens to come across a social media post and you know Joe Schmo walks by and reads and says oh maybe I should take a low histamine diet because I you know had poor night's sleep three nights ago or something like that that's where it gets into uh, big time problem areas and a lot of people are uh, adopting strict elimination diets when they don't have to.
0: I, I fully agree there I've seen many people on low histamine diets never seen anyone benefit from it I've I've worked with one person who I felt like truly may have a reaction to histamine based on multiple challenges where he seemed to, uh, higher histamine foods really seemed to cause, you know, an allergic type of response. He was getting skin redness and that type of thing. But that, that was only one case. And I've worked with many, many people who have followed low histamine diets, who have gone into this rabbit hole and thought that it was something that was affecting them. And it, and it really wasn't. Um, it was something else in the diet, you know, the wine, the actual alcohol, not the histamines, what uh, was uh, affecting them, you know, it's, it's usually, there's usually more obvious low hanging fruit. And when you get on social media, everyone wants to talk to you about the, the secret magical solution that, that the doctors don't want you to know about. And oftentimes, it's usually exercise habits, basic nutrition habits, sleep, stress management, it's usually not that complicated.
1: Or the stuff people overlook like glycemic index, right? So there are foods that can spike your insulin and and glucose and then you come crashing down and you feel, you know, extreme fatigue after eating it. Uh, You know, you you know better than anybody, the the powerful nocebo and placebo effects when you follow these elimination diets or start taking supplements and stuff like that. Uh, So instead of sort of, you know, demonizing entire categories of food I, I really want to be thoughtful about well, what's your diagnosis and what's going on with you and then think through how you would benefit exactly
0: exactly so um another thing i want to and you you alluded to it a second ago what's the relationship between food allergies and like skin conditions like eczema um is there, is there a relationship are foods driving some of these skin reactions
1: Yeah, it's a really complicated relationship. So we know that, you know, with eczema, for example, it is a chronic skin condition, which has a very complex pathology. So there's immune system involvement, the skin barrier is often defective. there's mutations in the epidermis that allow water, moisture and things like that. Infants with um, persistent eczema are predisposed to develop food and environmental allergies as they get older. Uh, it's very un- unusual for a food to be the sole cause of eczema. I know a lot of people on the internet, you know, have, have said that I, I eliminated milk or whatever, and my child's eczema went away. Well, mm-hmm. that's typically not the only piece of the story. All of the current and and su- and forthcoming uh, clinical guidelines surrounding eczema all support the same thing. Don't do food allergy testing unless the history is very concrete that a food is causing rapid onset hives or swelling or things like that because you're going to find a lot of kids who are sensitized and if you take food out of their diet, they're the ones you're actually going to cause them to be allergic. And then number 2, if you jump right to the foods, uh, you're going to miss, you know, the vast majority of infants who will just get better if you focus on good skin care and all the environmental triggers that can worsen eczema. So that's really problematic and it's going to take years to kind of undo all of those those old outdated approaches.
0: Okay, so food can play a role, but it's usually not the primary factor and it shouldn't be the first thing that people focus on. Uh, Because I've I've worked with a lot of uh, parents of children with eczema and they come to me because they think nutrition is the primary thing. And typically, I will refer them to focusing on, like you said, skincare and other factors first before they start taking food out of a kid's diet, because that's really challenging to put a a child on like a more restrictive diet where you're taking out gluten and dairy and soy uh, and and you're starting them off on that path. And as you've mentioned, when you take those sweets away, then they can become more um, sensitized to them and can potentially become more allergic to those sweets if you're not exposing them to them and you're taking them away for for reasons that aren't, you know, that aren't a good reason.
1: Yeah, absolutely. We have so many great ways to for skincare. Uh, so many amazing, just good, you know, daily skincare regimens, as well as uh, great medications. Tons of new medications that treat the inflammation that aren't steroid based. Um, and so, before we think about foods, those children really kind of have to earn it. So, meaning you're following a very good skincare regimen. Uh, you're doing, you know, lots of moisturizers. You're avoiding fragrance products and scented products on the skin. You're using good anti-inflammatory medication. And then those those you know very rare infants that truly still have severe refractory disease despite all that that's when we started thinking that maybe there's something else going on here but for the vast majority if we can apply these things they're going to get better and their eczema tends to get better as they get older anyway so we can avoid any potentially a lifetime of food avoidance and this is this really it's it's heartbreaking. I see these families that come with these panel tests. Everything's elevated. They were scared out of their minds to introduce these foods to their infants. We did miss this window of opportunity during infancy where we could have got the food in their diet to prevent food allergy. Now they're stuck with it. Now they're stuck avoiding, you know, eight to 10 foods for years and years and years where we could have prevented that just by not doing the testing and focusing on giving the right education to these families up front.
0: Yep. One of the main things that I do when people come to me with children in these conditions is I'm telling them that they should be eating these foods i'm like we need to try to introduce as much as we can back into the diet as quickly as possible and if there are reactions and then you can uh, back off of those foods but um just removing foods based on these panels is just it's it's so problematic and i've seen it over and over again um next thing i want to discuss is the rates of food allergies are they increasing because i've seen statistics saying that they're increasing um are they really
1: Uh, It appears to be uh, for multiple reasons. Uh, You know, it's really hard to truly study prevalence of food allergy because you have to do these, you know, food challenges to prove that they're allergic. So a lot of these are based upon symptoms or self-reports or these markers such as sensitization with blood testing or things like that. Mm -hmm. So it's really hard to capture exactly how many people have food allergies. It's probably five to eight percent of the general population of both kids and adults. Um, and it does seem to be increasing over time. We also know that food allergies disproportionately affect people from different um, racial backgrounds, uh, from different socioeconomic backgrounds, different parts of the world, uh, whether that's related to, you know, how far you live from the equator and amount of vitamin D you get versus just ancestry and genetic predisposition is yet to be teased out. Uh, but yeah, we definitely see differences in different populations as well.
0: And is um, I, I've seen you discuss this before, but one of the things that, and I've seen this in the literature as well, is the hygiene hypothesis and how that might be related. Can you speak to that a little bit? Yeah,
1: the the theory is that uh, for people who are born into farming environments and they're exposed to lots of animals from an early age, and most importantly, lots of bacteria and endotoxin and their immune system is being challenged all the time, uh, that they are less likely to develop allergies. So we don't see a lot of food allergies and other allergies in third world countries. Uh, whereas we do see it more in highly civilized countries because as we've moved to more cleaner environments where, where people are protected from uh, exposing their immune system to all these different bacteria and things like that, what I, the way I think about it is their immune system kind of gets bored. So, I mean, it makes no evolutionary advantage for us to experience an allergic reaction to peanuts or ragweed or dog dander. So the IgE antibody initially evolved to help fight off parasitic infections. And as humans move to cleaner environments, we don't have to fight off parasites anymore, especially in the United States of America or other civilized nations. So the IgE gets bored and it starts reacting uh, to all these uh, antigens that really should not be problematic for human beings. Uh, So that's sort of the theory behind that. There's other cool research to support this. So they looked at Amish populations uh, and they've demonstrated lower rates of allergy and and things like that. And then there's a, a great study from years ago where they they took cohorts of infants at higher risk to develop allergy, and the way that their pacifier was cleaned by their parents um, was it was showed differences in their risk of developing allergy. So one group of parents, when the binky fell out of their kid's mouth, they put it in their own mouth and then popped it back in their child's mouth, and the other group gave them a clean binky or washed it off meticulously. So the ones where they used their own mouth to kind of wash it off and pop it back in had lower rates of allergy as they got older. Uh, so you know this this movement towards being so hyper clean and and um, you know sanitized everything is probably doing a disservice to our immune systems over time.
0: I love that discussion because it's it's so counterintuitive, but I've looked into that literature as well. And it's one of the strongest uh, signals that we see with preventing allergies is really the hygiene factor. And I've seen this with multiple points of data, as you mentioned, like the binky I've seen with uh, uh, families who use dishwashers because it sanitizes mm-hmm. the plates better. Um, there's multiple points of data that just continue to point to if you're overly hygienic and you're you're using antibacterial uh, products on everything, that that's actually probably going to be. Negative in terms of building up uh, your immune system and, and helping to prevent allergies. So uh, let your kids play in the dirt. Let them get dirty. Let them let them pick food up off the floor and all of these different things um, because that's going to help build up their immune system. And also, there's some some emerging evidence showing that that helps with like the diversity of the microbiome, which mm-hmm. can also probably play a role with the immune system as well. Which is a much <laughs> a really compli- complicated topic that you know the, the research is emerging on a- as we speak.
1: I, yes, I agree. Emerging, uh, yeah. So be wary of anybody who says they figured out the whole microbiome thing. We're we're not quite there just yet. Yes, differences are absolutely they do occur and they have been identified, especially for those who have allergies, for those who do who don't. But I think we're a little ways away from uh, identifying that properly and knowing exactly what to do about it. So yeah, we, we don't need to get into that. But I agree. Yeah, it. no,
0: that, that that's a very complicated <laughs> discussion. I'm really excited about what the what the future holds for the microbiome, though, because as we continue to understand it better, I feel like there's major implications for um, inflammatory and immune conditions when, when we really understand how to test the microbiome properly and modify it in such a way that it actually um, starts to support our health when sometimes it can actually play a, play a negative role.
1: Yeah. And if I may, I don't want to divert too too much, but it, it is related to what we're talking about. So- I think people, especially today and with social media, where everybody wants their information immediately. Uh, people aren't taking the time to digest information and figure out how it fits in with all the other information we know about how the world works and we want to form instant opinions. Well, when it comes to understanding human health and, and all these chronic conditions, the evidence evolves over time and often changes over time. Sometimes it even contradicts itself. Like We know with food allergy prevention, as we talked about, we used to say avoid, now we know eat. So if you just take a snapshot or if you just take one study or one headline, that's not giving you the full picture. And I think there's a lot of folks out there, especially influencers online that take these things and run with it. And they make these broad claims, overarching claims that aren't supported by the entire body of evidence. So it behooves all of us to take a deep breath, digest it all, take a step back and say, all right, how does all of this mountain of evidence sort of help formulate our opinions and understanding of things? And how has that changed over time? So for what it's worth, I think, you know, as we talk about all of these things, let's just take a deep breath. And and there's no one study that that proves anything wrong or right.
0: Definitely. And as you mentioned, like, you hear this, and I I hear this uh, frustration a lot is a lot of consumers will say, well, the science is always changing. If you feel that way, you're Probably getting your information from some of the wrong people because uh, the science changes very very slowly, and what we know about nutrition what we know about uh, immunology it's it's pretty well established and there may be some changes over time as you mentioned over twenty years we we've kind of developed research to to change the understanding of things, but you shouldn't be thinking like every few weeks that uh, the science is changing because that's that's not reality that's headlines because the New York Times will. Uh, promote a headline one week that says low carb diets are the best and then three weeks later we'll promote a similar headline saying that vegan diets are the best and uh, that that's why many consumers are confused it's because you're not getting your information from evidence-based sources oftentimes and you're getting your information from people who are trying to sensationalize this this topic as opposed to um, people who care about your health I would say because that's the reality like as a healthcare provider it's very very clear that the information that you're providing is um you are doing it from a place of i want people to know what's correct and i want people to be able to benefit from it and that's not always the case and most of the information typically like if you go google food allergy um you're gonna get a lot of ads from mm-hmm. companies who are who have a financial stake in getting you to believe something and unfortunately that's You have to be extremely skeptical of all of the information that you come across because most of the people that you're going to, when you seek information, most of the first sources that you come into contact with are going to be people who have a financial stake in getting you to believe a certain thing. And one of the most profitable things to get people to believe in this space is uh, food allergy screening, food sensitivity screening. So you'll see ad after ad after ad getting you to buy into these things because if they can spend $50 to get that ad in front of you and you spend $200 on the test that company continues to grow and they can blast that information out to everyone and so unfortunately that's how it works we don't because we're not selling a $200 test on this podcast we can't run ads to get it to every single person um and so that's unfortunately where the balance um of accurate information and information that uh, is supporting an interest. Sometimes it's, it's harder to find accurate information and the information that is uh, very biased and trying to get you to believe a certain thing is usually put in front of you very, very easily.
1: Yeah, very well said. And, and, you know, for all of your listeners, you and I, we, we know the playbook, right? We could we could flip this around and we could make ourselves very famous and very lucrative because we know how to manipulate the science. And but we choose not to. Uh, instead, we're we're beating our heads against the wall, fighting all the misinformation that comes at us nonstop, left and right. But we're having this conversation because we really want to help people. Uh, we want to help those who who actually have these conditions and need to to seek evaluation and get the guidance they need. But we want to help those who don't have these conditions understand why maybe you know going down these elimin- elimination diets isn't. The right path for them, and that it's still helpful to talk to their own doctor about their concerns and, and go from there. So, I'm sure all of your listeners appreciate that. That's why they listen to you and follow you. But you know, that's this is great. This is why I love you know interacting with folks like you, and we can have this conversation. Try to help as many people as we can.
0: I really appreciate it. And I had a few more questions, but I don't want to continue and take too much of your time because I know we can go off on tangents about these questions as well. So I'm just going to direct my listeners to go follow you because I know you have lots of content out there. You're putting out information on social media. You have your podcast. Um, Is there anything else that you want to uh, direct people towards in terms of good sources for information on this topic?
1: Yeah, I always highlight the professional organizations. Uh, you mentioned I'm involved in several of them, but they're all, they're, they're led by the true experts in different fields, uh, whether it's gastroenterology or nutrition or allergy and immunology. Uh, there's, there's two great allergy organizations in the United States, the American Academy and the American College of Allergy, Asthma, Immunology. There's great organizations in Canada and Europe as well. So go to them. They all have social media presences and great websites filled with information. Um, and if you're up for it, I'd love to come back sometime and we can you know, hit some some other highlights that we missed today. But this was great talking with you.
0: Definitely, definitely. I'd love to have you back on. I've discussed this in the podcast before. I, I am very selective in the people that I bring on and I, the people that I do bring on are the experts of experts. So I'm only going to, um, if we talk about food allergies or food intolerances again, I will definitely be reaching back out to you because I, I want to make sure that I connect my audience to the people that are providing the right information and also who cares Um, because that's also important because I know that it's really easy to have a podcast. And as you mentioned, the playbook in podcasting is typically bring a lot of popular people on feature, you know, very sensational messages. And that's how you grow a podcast. But my goal is not to do that. I want to connect people with experts who who are going to provide the right information. And uh, if you listen to the show, hopefully, you continue to develop more knowledge around these various topics and you feel more comfortable about nutrition and you don't feel like you necessarily need to listen to the show or need to continue to seek out, you know, sources in this space and you just feel as we mentioned, it's not always changing. So you don't have to continue to um, find the new thing. My goal is not to sell you the new thing. My goal is to help you develop an understanding of these various topics. So I appreciate uh, you coming on Dr. Stukas. Thank you so much for sharing your wisdom with us. And we definitely look forward to having you on again.
1: It's my pleasure. Thank you. Thank you.